I'm Christian Chiller. Welcome to my podcast, an enthusiastic ramble through whatever has taken my interest the past week or so. Expect technology, games, history, travel, geekery, and as always, much, much more. Welcome everybody. I am here on my backup mic, so apologies if things sound a little different from normal. But it's a busy week. I have an interview with Daniel Loretto of Jetpack, and they're quite interesting developer tools. But first, a few links, and then after the interview, some updates from me. Well, most interesting to me, I suppose, because I've actually been kind of following it and messing around with it the past few months anyway, uh, courtesy of some of the blog posts I've written and also just generally being a Parallels user. So... You can run Windows on Apple Silicon Macs, on the ARM build for Windows, but it's always been a bit unofficial. And there were various hoops you had to jump through to get it to work. But Parallels was the one um, virtualization software that let you um, do that more easily. I really know what they were doing behind the scenes to make that uh, seamless. But anyway, they were doing it. And then just from, uh, this is actually both from ZDNet. This is first from Liam Tung. Microsoft has now made it official. Uh, interestingly, it was a little bit unclear to me whether they just made the ARM version of Windows official or they just meant that now running Windows 11 on Macs powered by ARM processors is official. Either way, both now VMware and Parallels can sort of officially, I feel like I've said that word quite a lot, run an offer Windows running on their tools um, I don't know what major difference it's going to have to anything. You still have to buy a Windows license, et cetera, et cetera. But it's nice to know you're not doing anything technically wrong anymore. And I will say that the Windows, ARM Windows, actually runs pretty well. I have run games on it and some heavier software, and I do not really experience any issues. So good to know that now I can do it more officially. Related to that from Stephen Vaughan Nichols, also on ZDNet, Linux 6.2 kernel is the first mainstream Linux kernel that adds support for Apple Silicon chips. Now, this is interesting in many ways um, because, again, you can run Linux, um, ARM versions of Linux on on uh, Apple Silicon Macs relatively easily. I actually published a post on this a little while ago showing you some of the options and it, it runs pretty, pretty well. You just have to find a version of Linux that runs pretty, pretty well because not all of them do and there's often packages missing and, and a few things like that, but it's a possibility. Um, and various people, I think specifically, thanks to Asahi Linux, and now it's officially part of the kernel, I guess, meaning opening the door to many other variants of Linux running on Apple machines. And you could always do that on the old Intel machines. So it opens that door to run on all Macs from you know <laughs> the past 10 to 20 years, uh, if you want to. Uh, dual booting. And, and it's interesting to see how you can now have that almost seamless uh, running between the two platforms. You can run Linux on you can run Linux on Macs if you're using it as a Mac, and you can run Linux on Macs if you just want to use it as Linux. So all that's left is running Mac OS on Linux machines, and that's not going to happen. But I mean, it's sort of possible. But anyway, so it's interesting to see that uh, these various competitors to each other are kind of allowing flexibility around what you can and can't do. Of course, again, much like the last story, it's often all a bit unofficial, but still 
uh, it's cool to see and cool to see that the Linux kernel developers managed to get it to work because I doubt they had much insight into the processes and had to do a lot of reverse engineering and guesswork and things like that to even make this possible in the first place. So pretty cool. Next, uh, it wouldn't be a tech podcast without talking about ChatGPT, but I'm not going to go into much detail here. Instead, I will direct you to Stephen Wolfram's blog. He has been on the show before, a good few years ago now, and he has a very detailed post going into well, detail, unsurprisingly, with all sorts of images and explanation. It's pretty long and gets pretty detailed about how it all actually works. Uh, lots of people just messing around with it, and you hear these various somewhat uh, awkward explanations of people trying to uh, make it clear what it is and what it does and this kind of thing. But if you really want to get in amongst the weeds by someone who pretty much knows exactly what they're talking about and has been doing this sort of work for some time, then it's a great blog. Just prepare to reread a few things and get a little bit lost and uh, need some further explanations here, there and everywhere. But uh, if you are craving those deeper insights, then really do take a look. Next, I've sort of found this interesting. There's another ZDNet article. I don't exactly know why I had so many from them. Just their newsletter had some interesting uh, articles this week, I suppose. One password is saying goodbye to passwords in favor of pass keys. So this is largely in terms of authenticating with one password and password managers. Uh, and instead being able to use pass keys to do that and then encouraging you, like they do with their two-factor authentication feature, encouraging you to use passkeys instead of passwords where available. Uh, this is this new, well, not new, but uh, now increasingly new mainstream uh, method of using some sort of identifier instead of a password, be that uh, Touch ID or some kind of biometric thing, YubiKeys, many other ways of doing it. Um, I, I've definitely seen a few websites, not that many, that use uh, the Touch ID on Macs and um Whatever the Android term for it is, I've seen that in a few places too. Not that many, but it's coming. And I think it's in a lot of people's interest to implement it because it also means less less admin work for the designers of those sites as well. They don't have to store passwords and things like that. So, yeah. Uh, and this is you know a company that is literally called 1Password saying that they will look to offer this as prime options as definitely as a plan B option very, very soon. And will they change the company name? I don't know. Probably not. But, uh, uh, you know, it's interesting to see that they're not really, it's not really uh, harming their business in any way. Uh, it just changes their business. But they, you know, if they get at the, at the forefront of that, they can be a trusted provider in security and authentication and not just password management. And, yeah, what these various companies like, a bit more than 1Password, LastPass, etc. will end up calling them and calling themselves and what they do in the future. Who knows? I guess, yeah, like authentication managers or something like that. <laughs> and finally, I, although I lie, I have two and finalists. First is from CNN Travel, written by uh, Jacopo Prisco. The people who live inside airplanes, I, <laughs> this is, might seem like a random thing for me to put in, but it comes because I wrote a short story, a flash fiction last year, and I'll actually be publishing these quite soon, about someone who survives a crash and decides to live on a plane. 
And then I saw that actually people really do this. So, so I'm still fascinated to know. And it's also in uh, Station Eleven uh, and Warm Bodies, two sort of post-apocalyptic uh, works of fiction where people live on planes as well. And it made me kind of interested to see what they've done to these 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 uh, shells and where they park them and things like that. It's quite fascinating and how they get power and water and all that kind of stuff. I mean, they're actually pretty large structures. They're just very long. You know, you don't have much width, but you have a lot of length and cubby holes and, and a lot of light, um, air conditioning systems and all these kinds of things. You know, in some respects, they're kind of intriguing places to, to use. Uh, but if you're fascinated to see some quite cool photos as well of people with their, their homes, then uh, take a look. And, and finally, this is from Addy Page on Medium. Scientists warn of a friendship recession, and this is something that has been hitting me a lot recently, how the past couple of years, I'm just going to call it that, has really sort of changed the way we treated each other and the, how people who had certain social needs, how those happened and et cetera, et cetera, and how they didn't happen and how we seem to have come out of it now after a relatively short period of time with almost in certain sections of society, forgetting how to do friendships. And I've really noticed this, like a lot of people I used to hear from, I don't hear from people have become more unreliable. People don't respond to messages. Um, I've found myself being less tolerant of people who take a while to schedule with and prioritizing people who are more reliable, this kind of thing. But is all of this meaning that our, our lack of, I mean, it depends on what you're adding into that mix, but that we're, we are losing more friends and more associates and more social contact, again, certain people, certain places, et cetera, et cetera, cetera uh, than is healthy. Uh, we've kind of slipped back, slipped into this this pattern that the, the past couple of years forces into, and we're not really out of it yet. And what will it take to come out of it? And I realize there's lots of nuances to the conversation, but I found it interesting to see that I wasn't the only one thinking about it. So... <laughs> Not necessarily a good thing, but always sort of good to know it's not just you, I suppose. Next is my interview with Daniel Loretto, where we spoke about Jetpack and their pretty cool, interesting dev tools. Today I am joined by Daniel Loretto of Jetpack. Uh, this is already slightly confusing because uh, there's Jetpack Compose as well, but we're not talking about Jetpack Compose. Um, we're talking about Jetpack.io. You have this very cool slogan that immediately grabbed me, cloud development without complexity. Jetpack builds open source tools that make cloud development a delightful experience. And that says a lot, but doesn't say much in some respects. So tell me what it is you actually do. <laughs> what does Jetpack actually do? Yeah, Chris, great question. Uh, so Jetpack's all about making cloud development easier, but in order to do that, we're releasing different products and different technologies that mm -hmm. help with different parts of the stack. Uh, so one of our first releases is something we call DevBox. Uh, and DevBox makes it easy to declare a developer environment once and then replicate it as many times as you want. Uh, so you and your teammates and everybody working on the same project can get the exact same environment mm. every single time. So this is actually, I, I see, as far as I can tell, you're using Nix. Correct. It's the power of Nix. I'm assuming Nix OS. Um, 
Yeah, so DevBox is is based on Next. It uses Next internally. Uh, yeah. So for those that are familiar with Next, Next is a package manager that makes things very reproducible. Uh, but we're giving it a, a, a an abstraction on top that makes it much easier to use. You don't need to learn the Next language or, or anything like that. Just to clarify, because I've tried a few tools in this sort of space. This is still running locally, yeah? Correct. Yeah, so yeah. there's no container. Uh, so the overhead is very low. Uh, it starts up very quickly. You use if if you're developing on a Mac, for example, mm-hmm. you're accessing the same file system as your computer. Compilation mm-hmm. remains fast. Uh, you know, I, we we have some users who previously used Docker for this kind of yep. thing, and the, the, what we hear is that at least for development the overhead of Docker feels sometimes like too much, right? Mm-hmm. For, for deploying to production, Docker's fantastic. We love Docker for that. Uh, but in terms of recreating a developer environment that you're changing all the time, uh, when it's local and particularly when you're not on Linux, yeah, uh, there's a lot of overhead from the virtualization layer. So with so Nix, you don't, you don't need any of that. I'm really fascinated to, to try this. NixOS is something I messed around with very briefly after someone explained the concept to me. And I've even tried to do my own weird, like, half-assed version on macOS with a bunch of uh, homebrew scripts. But that kind of leads me into my next thing. Like, what is actually happening here? I mean, is it is it like using homebrew on, on the Mac or chocolatey on Windows? Or is there something something in between kind of... Homebrew yeah, so, and, and, and Docker here. Yeah, yeah. So I, I guess let me try to break it down. Um, yeah. DevBox gives a, a Yarn-like interface. So if you okay. use Yarn uh, for, for JavaScript, uh, you know, you can add a package to a project, remove a package from a project. There's a package.json that declares the dependencies that you need for that particular project. Mm. DevBox works very much the same way. So for a particular project, you initialize it. It creates a devbox.json. And then you say, I want to add package A, B, and C. And after that, it's able to create a shell just for that project that contains the tools that you need. Behind the scenes, that is being done all with Nix. And so what Nix does is you have what's called the Nix store. It's it's an area in the file system where it's storing all the packages that it installs. But Nix is very particular about differentiating versions and making sure everything's reproducible. And so any slight variation on the tools, um, the Nix automatically hashes that and puts it in a slightly different yep. place in the file system. Yep. So if you have Python, you know, if you have 10 versions of Python, all of them are installed in the Nix store under different hashes. Yeah, yeah. And then when you ask to create a virtual shell for the project that you're working on, the particular hash of the particular Python that you need is the one that's put on the path. Yeah. And then if so, you does were, that make sense? Yeah, and if you were done, you could just wipe it all, but you also don't have the minimal overhead, but an overhead all the same of a of a of a hypervisor or a virtual machine or something like that, you know. Depending on if you're using Docker desktop, it's one thing. If you're using Podman or something, then it's Quemu, you know. It's a right, small right. overhead these days, but it's still an overhead. <laughs> right. Exactly. So, yeah, okay. Cool. Interesting. Interesting. And did you look at other options instead of just NixOS or was that the, you wanted to build something on top of that? Or was it just the best option? No. So we actually, you know, we, we actually were using Docker ourselves internally mm. for development uh, because we wanted those reproducible development environments. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we just got 
frustrated ourselves with you know that overhead that I was mentioning, mm-hmm. uh, p- particularly when you're compiling something. Um, and also whenever you're changing the image and you need to rebuild it. Uh, And so it just felt very slow, very painful. So we just started looking for solutions and eventually we ran into Nix and we felt two things at once. One, we were like, wow, this is really cool. This is, has the properties that we need. And we also felt, wow, this is kind of hard to use. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Like, why do I need to learn a new language in order to set this up? Uh, And so... That's how we started building DevBox initially internally, just for our own use. And eventually we said, you know what, let's open source it. And we got a great reaction from that open sourcing. And and so we started investing on it uh, more as a product. And what what is that? Uh, Like, how seamless is that move to to production because obviously if you are running python you're running python on a mac or windows and then going to python or linux i mean it's not it's not going to be a huge um differentiation these days but is there any friction there yeah so the there's a little bit of you're saying in terms of moving that environment from development to production yeah, right that's the yeah, question you are actually yeah. running those languages on especially these days you know maybe on an arm mac or something like that and it can be problematic <laughs> yeah so there's a little bit of friction but it is one of the things that we're trying to make better yeah. and better uh, i guess the short answer is that today uh because devbox and nix run on both mac and linux okay. uh, and the names of the packages are the same, right? So you can use the same declaration to both both inside of a Docker file where you're trying mm. to set up a particular image or in your laptop. So you can have okay. one file mm. with the list of packages and then write a Docker file that uses that the definition. And then in your computer, in your laptop, outside of Docker, use that same definition as well. Nice. Okay, cool. But, but we're trying to go further. We don't have this ready yet, but we're trying to make it so that DevBox itself could kind of like just give you that container as yeah. well so that you can then yeah. just take the environment with you anywhere yeah. you want. Yeah. And this is just one of the tools you have. You also have a Launchpad. Uh, I messed around with um, Ubuntu long enough to know that that's also one of their tools. Oh, I didn't, so well now known. that you're saying it, I, yeah, I, I didn't, yeah, I didn't remember that. Well, name I don't think that many people encounter Launchpad. So, <laughs> <laughs> so what is Launchpad deploy any project to Kubernetes hassle-free? What is, what is yeah. So mean? Launchpad is in an earlier stage than DevBox. So I would say that one's more of an alpha. Uh, and we're just, you know, trying to get people to try it and give us feedback, but I'd say the a theme in our companies, we notice these places in cloud development where there's a complex, hard to use technology and we're trying to mm. simplify it. Mm. So in the case of Launchpad, that's Kubernetes. Uh, we've deployed applications on Kubernetes, but we feel like you need to learn too much about Kubernetes terminology, right? Kubernetes manifest files yeah. in YAML, or we learn what Helm is, Helm charts, like all this kind of stuff. And so what Launch, Launchpad does is it tries to give you a Heroku-like interface to deploy to your Kubernetes cluster, yeah. where you can just run a single command launchpad up, and behind the scenes, we go ahead and create a Helm chart and do take care of the whole deployment for you uh, without you having to learn all those Kubernetes concepts. And, and how does it compare to things like um, Terraform, 
Uh, oh, there's, there's so many of these kind of, you're even following some similar paradigms here, like launchpad in it, launchpad up. Uh, I was also looking at uh, Pulumi the other day. Yeah, I mean, I think Terraform, Pulumi, I would think of them more as, as infrastructure as code, meaning yeah, that you're yeah, for declaring sure, for sure, for sure. what infrastructure you need, whereas... I think Launcher is more about the deployment process when you have a cluster. So, so we're not necessarily. I mean, we it can create a cluster for uh, you, but that, okay, okay, yeah. Okay. It, it, it's so it's it's less about removing the barrier of creating the infrastructure and more about removing the Kubernetes manifest uh, that you need to declare in order to deploy an application okay. to Kubernetes. So you're replacing the, more replacing something like kubectl. Yes, yes, exactly. Yes, yeah. Okay. We, we still give you, if you need to drop yeah. down and use kubectl, it's still possible. But yeah, yeah. The, the idea is that you don't need to run kubectl, you just do launchpad up, and you didn't even have to write a YAML file, and um, you've deployed an application. Yeah, to I guess also some of the features of something like Minikube, but not, not completely, um, because that that's a slightly different use case there but you know it has some additional features in minikube for I, to be honest with you i don't i tend to use docker desktop for kubernetes so i forgot i forget what minikube can do sometimes <laughs> <but> <laughs> yeah <laughs> we, we launchpad works against any kubernetes cluster yeah like, okay yeah yeah we, we yeah. make it easy to create one if you don't have one but we really just want to work with any kubernetes cluster so you could actually do launchpad up and deploy the application to the kubernetes that comes with Docker Desktop, or yeah. you can set up a okay. Minikube and deploy there, or you can set up one in AWS and GCP and, and deploy to those clusters yeah. as well. I would definitely like something that means I can stop having to uh, remember all these resources I've created and so I can delete them again. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. I do generally be quite lazy and just delete the uh, Docker Desktop uh, image quite a lot. <laughs> just start again from scratch, which is a very stupid way of doing things, but sometimes it's easier. Um, I'm kind of interested you go for this Heroku-like experience because I, I sort of feel like that was uh, one of those uh, patterns that... Um, people recognize and want to follow, but I sort of feel like people have moved on from it so long ago. It's a dangerous uh, comparison to make. Um, I don't know. All I hear about Heroku these days is people trying to move away from it. So. <laughs> that is true. I, I, you, know, you have a point there. I think the tide has changed and yeah. <laughs> I hear more about moving away from the Heroku than I don't know what you would Heroku. say instead because people kind of understand what you mean. But yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's like more like you know one command without having to run, write yeah, all these manifest files. Sure. It's kind of what we're So you've got two interesting things here. I'd like to go first into, you know, what were you doing? What was Jetpack doing? What was the team at Jetpack doing to want to create these tools? Like, were you an agency or or consultants or something like that? And then you started creating tools you thought would be useful to other people. What what got you here? No, no, no. So, so before Jetpack, I, I mean, I've, I've been doing cloud development my entire life. I've worked at Google, at Twitter, mm -hmm. at Airbnb. Uh, I ran engineering at a company called Verda Health, uh, which is telemedicine for for diabetes. Uh, and so when I was at Verda as the head of engineering, uh, you know, we had to invest in platform engineering just to make the cloud easier to use yep. for the entire team. 
Uh, and I just felt a little bit of deja vu, like, hey, we're reinventing the wheel. Like, we kind of had to do this at Airbnb, too. We had to do it at Twitter. We had to do it at all these places. And so you had to, yeah, that, that bugged me enough that I was like, I, I want to start a company that's focused on simplifying cloud development. Uh, so left, started the company, assembled an initial team. And at first, uh, you know, we had this, I guess we still have this bigger vision that it'd be great if cloud development was as easy as local development. Like what if you could just write a little program, execute it, and the entire platform takes care of making it distributed. Mm. You don't have to think about containers. You don't have to think about, you know, all the networking. Uh, like it just runs, you just write an application. It just runs in a computer that happens to be distributed. That is something like a Kubernetes cluster. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. We started by building something with, for that larger vision. What happened was that as we started talking to customers, um, many people have already invested in different parts of the stack. And so they were like, hey, your solution does A, B, C, and D, but that's too much because I already have something that does B and I don't want to change that right now. Can you just give me part C? And somebody else might say, can you just give me part A? Mm -hmm. um, so anyways, those learnings made us say, you know what, we need to unbundle the technology we created into smaller pieces that people can grab and use as they choose. Uh, I guess in spirit, more similar to a HashiCorp uh, style yeah, of company, yeah, right? Yeah, Where they have yeah, a, a suite yeah. of tools. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, from that learning, that's how we split up the first piece, which became DevBox, mm -hmm. uh, and then are in the early stages of Launchpad. Uh, and, you know, we have a few more that we want to release, but also kind of first want to ensure that these are successful before we, you know, before we add too many. And on that note, let's, like, these are very interesting um uh, tools, but they don't uh, pay for a company. Um, so what's the monetization strategy around these? I can see lots of things on your uh, webpage around Dev, DevBox Cloud Beta, which has a whole bunch of um, additional features. And then also uh, Mission Control seems to be something else I can see mentioned on the site a few times. Yeah. So, so what are the, how, how are you taking these open source tools into a business? <laughs> yeah. Great idea. Cause at the end of the day, we are a company and we do yeah. uh, great question. We, we do want a business. Um, yeah. So the strategy is we release open source tools. We hope those open source tools are valuable in and of themselves. They will always be free, but we will have accompanying managed services mm -hmm. that, you know, if people want to pay for it, will sustain the business, right? And so in the case of DevBox, for example, DevBox is all about setting up your development environment. For local use, for, your, for setting up your development environment in your own computer, the open source tool does that and will always be free. Mm -hmm. But then DevBox Cloud is going to add additional capabilities to make it easy to spin that environment in a VM on the cloud. Mm -hmm. uh, to have a Nix cache that automatically caches any packages you use, you know, close to the regions where you and, and your team are. Uh, to have a, a registry where you can publish something that you yeah. package with DevBox and now somebody else can depend on it, right? Um, we're in the process of building that suite. That, that's why DevBox Cloud is in beta because we mm -hmm. just have one mm -hmm. of those pieces now. Uh, but yeah, that, that's the strategy. Open source tools complemented with managed services. Uh, and so if you choose to use the managed services, uh, then you would pay for those. Uh, we do plan to have uh, free tiers in all of these managed mm -hmm. services because we want people to get value first. Mm -hmm. And then if they 
get the value, then you know, paid for an additional tier. Uh, there's a, there's obviously you mentioned already this sort of platform engineering. Uh, platform as a service in, internally in a lot of large companies. You know, there's a lot of providers busy in this space uh, in, in recent years. So what do you think DevBox Cloud Jetpack is going to add uh, that's, that's a point of differentiation from all of those? Yeah. I mean, to me, the, the usability of these... Um, I guess tools, frameworks, services uh, that are exposed by the large cloud providers is still too hard. Mm-hmm. Um, like if you look at AWS, I mean, I, I, to some extent, I love AWS. It, it's it's a great service. We use it, but the complexity is blown up, right? And <laughs> if you if you open like what services do you use, it's like there's hundreds. You're like, and then you go read about any one of them, and there's like. 50, 100 ways of configuring it. So yeah. we're, we're trying to simplify that and I, I guess make it so that we're doing the right thing for that 80% of the cases so that you don't get the complex configuration. Yeah, There's a 20% where you need to do something very specific in a different way. And there, something like AWS directly will be the right fit, right? Because you need all that customization. But I would say for 80% of the cases, if we can just encapsulate the best practices in a way that you don't need to think about them. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that's what we want to do. Okay. And what, so what is mission control, which seems to uh, overlap with uh, the monetization of Launchpad? What is mission control? Yeah, so mission control, uh, that's still in private uh, mm-hmm. alpha, so we haven't opened it up to everybody. Uh, but that's the idea of automatically provisioning all the configuration you need to get started as an engineer uh, for on the cloud. So, so for example, um, when you start a company that's using Kubernetes, you probably need to set up a kube config, mm-hmm. um, and that needs to have the right credentials so that you have access to all the right things. Uh, mission control is you know sign sign up once to you know, with your Launchpad username, which can tie to SSO and, and like, you know, the rest of uh, identity that your company uses. And we'll go ahead and set those things up automatically mm-hmm. so that you're up and running as an engineering from, uh, as an engineer from day one. Okay. And will that tie to DevBox Cloud as well? Or are they two sort of distinct um, services. Uh, there's a possibility. We're still thinking about it, but we have heard from some people that, hey, wouldn't it be cool if I could declare the environment that all my engineers should have, like mm. to start with, <coughs> once as a you know as a DevBox environment, and then when somebody onboards, their their computer has all those tools already. Mm. Uh, and so there's there's an angle there. Uh, we want to make sure it's a unique angle to developers and not something that's already taken care of by by MDM like systems, yep. right? That, yep. that, are, that are using IT. Yep. Uh, but it seems like there might be a space there because MDM like systems usually are more suited to installing, you know, like macOS like yep. applications yep. or that type of application, and not necessarily like all the packages and developer tools that. Yep. Are, developer needs yeah and 
Is is Jetpack itself ever going to be something as well, or is it just just no Jetpack? Well, when we were building this, you know, I told you when we started, we were building like this kind of holistic thing. Yeah. Uh, we were calling that Jetpack, but once we decided to unbundle the technology, uh, Jetpack.io is the name of the company. Yeah. Not, and then the different products have in your know, individual names. Yeah. Okay. And I mean, again, similar to uh, HashiCorp, right? Where yeah, HashiCorp no, is just not true. nothing. Yeah. Nothing is called HashiCorp. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, I mean, they're definitely a company to learn from because I something I noticed with their tools, which have existed for a while. You know, everything back from uh, Vagrant up to the most recent tools, they follow very similar patterns each time. Uh, you can kind of use them no matter where you are on the journey with them. They, they have the same patterns and you see other tools using them like, like you are with Launchpad, like Pulumi does, InitUp, et cetera, et cetera. It's a pattern that we've become used to, which is it's kind of, it's kind of uh, amazing. They've managed to sustain that for so long, actually. Right, right. <laughs> so, um, and obviously everything is, is quite new and in early stages, but six months to a year, what's next? Yeah, so I mean, our focus right now is in releasing those additional uh, services I mentioned for DevBox Cloud, mm -hmm. and then in getting it from beta to GA. Mm -hmm. uh, so then we'll have a pricing model, we'll make it generally available, etc. Uh, and then after DevBox Cloud, we want we plan to do that for Launchpad and and the other uh, products we have in mind, but you know we haven't announced those yet, so yeah. <laughs> that will have to wait. Okay, cool. And uh, so both of the things we've talked about are free to use, obviously, open source. And the DevBox Cloud, you say, is in public beta as well? It's in public beta. Yeah. Anybody can use it right now. Uh, you can use it to spin up a VM on the cloud. We spin it in on the edge, like we find the data center that is mm -hmm. closest to you, and that's where the VM spins up. Mm -hmm. And while we're in beta, it's completely free. You can get a, a four CPU, eight gig RAM machine uh, for free during the beta. Post beta, what we're going to do is you're going to get X hours of that VM yep. for free in the free tier, but eventually you hit a quarter limit. And then if you want to continue using yep. it, you, you wouldn't have to upgrade. Actually, one thing we didn't really dig into just as I was kind of moving into a wrap up, I'm assuming then that also allows for this kind of uh, Git pod, um, a style of, development. Yes. style of development, yeah, well. exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah. we are focused more on the VM itself than on the VS Code interface, no, no, um, for sure. But just this kind of it, you know, development yeah, environment exactly. in the browser sort of thing, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And then Launchbox, um, Mission Control, private <laughs> that's that's in private beta. So if, if that launchpad, sound... launchpad, there's an open source alpha available. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, the cloud the cloud versions of those are still in private. If it uh, sounds appealing, then get in touch. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yes. Cool. All right. Sounds very interesting. I, I really want to go and experiment with DevBox. Not immediately because it's nearly 7 p.m. here, but soon. <laughs> yeah. Yo, uh, try it out. Tell us what you think. We have a Discord community, which which we link to from, from all of our GitHub repos. So... Anybody that's interested, wants to join that, is welcome to do that. That was my interview with uh, Daniel of Jetpack. Quite interesting. I will probably look at some of their tools in a learning live stream or a hands-on video sometime quite soon because I've sort of 
interested to see uh, how well they work. Now, news from me. By the time this is published, my new website should be ready. Very much in beta stages, very much in early stages, with still quite a few things missing, but it's online. You can find most of my writing, most of my game work, most of my work work, uh, links to my newsletter, podcast videos, all that. And there's a lot more to come very soon. But I wanted to just get something out as soon as possible, even though it's not quite finished. I've also been continuing to write flash fiction in the Storytelling Collective's uh, short story competition. Oh, sorry, flash fiction, February. Uh, nearly wrapped up, but there's a few there. I need to have a few gaps to fill, but nearly all there. Been quite good fun. And I also wrote a post over on uh, Mac O'Clock on Medium about managing your home folder through version control using a bunch of different tools. So take a look if that interests you. I think that's it for now. It's been a busy few weeks and there's lots going on and I've sort of lost track and forgotten some of them, but there's definitely things happening. I, one of the things I wanted to do with my new website was make sure there was a place where I could put these kind of call to actions and announcements of these sorts of things. So there's a more central place to find it. But until next week, when I'll be back with some more interviews, I have a few lined up. Thank you very much for joining me, everybody, and take care. I hope you enjoyed the show. Find out more about me at chrischinchilla.com where you can find show notes, sign up for my newsletter, and find all of my writing, games, work, and video links. There's also details on how to get in touch with me. And if you want to get even closer to what I do, join my Discord server for behind-the-scenes discussions and helping me produce my shows and work. <laughs>